I'm Sarah Bariza, a church musician and researcher living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. This is Music and the Church. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Sui Hong Lim and Dr. Lester Ruth to discuss their new book, Lovin' on Jesus, A Concise History of Contemporary Worship. It explores the origins of contemporary worship, including contemporary worship music. We'll also talk about the implications their research has on music making today. What should traditional churches consider if they want to add a contemporary service? Can blended worship services have integrity? And what's the relationship of praise to worship? But first up, today's Try This at Church tip is, do as I did last week and not as I did the last 15 years. Go and get your big music books spiralized so they'll lay flat on your music rack. So where do you go to get this done? Well, I went to an office supply store. It took me about mm, eight minutes the first time, and I could have picked it up the day of, but I didn't. I didn't want to wait. And I picked it up a couple days later. I had six books spiralized or with a comb binding. Spiralizing actually makes me feel like we're talking about zucchinis. Right, right, right. Spiralizers with the vegetables. Then you're going to saute them with the onions. (laughs) Exactly. So basically this is, so the book will lay open on your music rack. And the impetus for this was, I mean, I've been meaning to do this for like 15 years. It's cheap. I think it was about $4 a book. Okay, that is cheap. (laughs) It's super, super cheap. And it was so easy. I'm serious. Like apart from the drive to the office supply store, It was probably about 15 minutes total in the store, maybe 10 minutes total inside the store. I was playing my postlude and my wonderful page turner literally held my book open the entire postlude. And I was like, "Mm, I've definitely done this has to happen. So do you have to pay attention to whether or not the music is printed all the way to the edge of the spine? Like in some books, I'm thinking my worst nightmare scenario would be that I would get my book spiralized and then pick them up and discover that I didn't have any keys. Me too. These were all like normal publications and I had no problem. They take about maybe an eighth of an inch off and then insert the comb. And these are all just standard editions, nothing spacious about them. Right. That sounds like a really good permanent solution, especially- I spent all these years, like, holding my book open with my phone. I mean, how ridiculous Oh, is yeah. That? Or with- you, you get extra hymnals out of the choir loft. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And then you can't turn the page. Yeah. You're like, oh, oh. So easy. That works so if easy. you have a page turner. The thing that I've done, which I learned from when I first worked in teachers- was to make miniaturized photocopies. So you lay your music down on the photocopier and like zap it to 60% or whatever. And then you take those and tape them onto manila folders that you've spread open. Man, you can you can fit a lot of pages. This works really well if you don't have a page turner and you have no way of turning your own pages aside from, you know, stopping the presses as you... Oh, I just I just always find a page turner. I'm like, would you like to hear some postlude music? Okay, can you facilitate the happening of this by turning my pages? <laughs> but seriously, I okay, so I have some things where I'm able to make them smaller and play from it, but it's all music that I know really well. I like, right. if, it's, if it's just something that I'm learning for the week, I have to read all the notes and I can't make it too small or I just... I can't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely only works on repertoire that you're really familiar with. Because you kind of already have an idea where you're going, and the, the notes are kind of just cueing you. Exactly, yeah. It's like it's, you're not really memorized, but you kind of have the general gist yes. that going. Yes, yeah. There we have it. Try this at church. Next up is our interview with Lester Ruth and Sui Hong Lim about their book, Lovin' on Jesus, A Concise History of Contemporary Worship. Crawford, I think the most interesting and wonderful thing about this book is that it's written to be accessible to a wide audience, and it's a history of contemporary worship, 
not contemporary worship music. And I think that's really important for us when we think about traditional music versus contemporary music. This is kind of a dichotomy that's set up for us that makes it seem like the issues are just about music, but really music... Music is just one of the many aspects of contemporary worship, and that actually makes the adoption of contemporary worship music into services that are otherwise unchanged kind of tricky. Right, and especially for those of us who work in traditions where there may be a mix of both contemporary and traditional music in a service that is itself either contemporary or traditional, the line isn't clear-cut, actually. Lester Ruth is a professor at Duke Divinity School, and Sui Hong Lim is a professor at Emmanuel College, which is part of the University of Toronto. And together, they have this book set up to be used potentially as a college textbook. This is the kind of book that I can envision a church staff group reading a chapter a week and discussing because there are so many important issues here for any church that is considering whether to adopt contemporary worship or has adopted it or has two different services, a contemporary service and a traditional service. This is the kind of book that's perfect to read a chapter a week in a group because you can discuss the issues in a pretty generous but neutral way. It's not written, oh, you should worship in this way or you shouldn't worship in this way. It doesn't reinforce the dichotomies that we find ourselves frequently presented with. Exactly. In this interview, you're going to hear the word ordo several times, O-R-D-O. And it may come across as a kind of unfamiliar word. Exactly. And you might think that we're saying something else like order because, well, the terms are related. But in this particular context, what we're meaning is just simply the order of a service. We do this thing, then we do this thing, then we do this thing. And in many, many churches, there's a liturgy of the word, then the liturgy of the Eucharist, and there's certain elements that are commonly used in these services, and they follow a specific order. But all churches have a way of doing things. Lester and Sui Hong are joining us from Dallas, where they were on a research trip. We actually got really lucky that they both happened to be in town at the same time. You know, obviously live in different countries. So here's our interview with Lester Ruth and Sui Hong Lim. start by talking about the broad scope of your book, because a lot of times church musicians think that contemporary worship is exclusively about contemporary music, but you make a case that it is about so much more than just worship music. Absolutely. There are a couple of ways to get at it. One is to talk about theological foundations or spirituality that kind of sparked the development of the music, in which case you're dealing with interpretation of the Bible and formation in certain biblical passages. I mean, you have to deal with the Bible before you can ever get to the making and the singing of music. Also, if you actually look at the history of the term contemporary worship itself, when it first began to emerge in the 1960s, it had as much to do about updated English as it had anything to do in terms of updated music. We're so used to updated English and worship now, but that was quite striking 40 to 50 years ago to go into a service and have people speak in a colloquial manner with all the prayers in a colloquial manner and even the song text in a colloquial manner. When you look at contemporary worship, yeah, the normal idea is to think of it that it is only about music. But those of us who are actually musicians realize that music has its own context. So if we are talking about contemporary worship music, we need to look at the contemporary worship context. 
And the context is definitely more than just about music making, more than just about performance practice. If you were to study a Beethoven symphony, for example, you need to look at the life of Beethoven, you need to look at the social cultural background of Beethoven, where he was located in that part of Europe at that time. Yes. You mentioned quite a few um, contexts for the origins of contemporary worship. You mentioned the contemporary non-archaic English, relevance to contemporary concerns and issues in the lives of worshippers. I'm paraphrasing from your book. A commitment to adapting worship to match contemporary people. And then you do talk about musical things such as extended times of uninterrupted congregational singing, a centrality of musicians. But you also talk about behavioral things, physical expressiveness, informality, and a lot of electronic technology. There are a lot of different issues here that music is situated within, but that music is just a part of. It's not that music is the whole thing and everything else is auxiliary. I'm really intrigued by the technological advances, some of which are involved in music making. But, I mean, just consider the level of computerized control of lighting in many worship spaces. I mean, that's quite unique in many respects and quite striking. Particularly in many churches that are medium to large size, it's quite astonishing how electronically dependent the worship has become. Yeah, to the point of having employees who are sound techs and lighting techs. And it's not just the tech people. Like For example, in some churches, they need to have their own substation because of the amount of power that they require to actually run a worship service. So can you imagine that in the 20th, 21st century, we cannot run worship services without electricity. If you have a contemporary worship setting, right, and you are sitting 5,000 to 8,000 people in the sanctuary, can you imagine if there's a power interruption somewhere, all the 8,000 people will be sitting in the dark and there's no way for the worship leader to lead the people in song. I mean, I come from Singapore, right? Our major mega churches of six to 7,000 member churches, they have their own substation. I've talked to a musician or two who've told me horror stories about losing power, and they've had to go retro and just grab an acoustic guitar <laughs> and lead worship like that. And, and sit in the dark, in the hot, humid air. <laughs> yeah. Beyond music, I mean, the technology, what's happening now in terms of streaming sermons and the attachment of remote campuses to a mother campus? I mean, we would see that part of yeah. the larger phenomenon, even if the music's actually a peripheral aspect of the remote campuses. And in fact, it's usually the aspect that they want to maintain live, but mm -hmm. the technological advancements is what allows the connection of the remote campuses to the mother campus. I was wondering if the reason for having the remote preaching but not the remote music is because we're used to watching a preacher like on the stage and we're watching him or her, whereas with music, it's participatory. And if we're just watching people on the stage, it feels like it's a performance or entertainment. I think this whole idea of why we prefer to have a live worship team or musician team compared to having a live preacher has to do with one of the chapters that Lester wrote in the book and that deals with the sacramentality of music making. The whole idea of music making is not just music making. The whole idea of music making is so that it becomes a vehicle for the encounter with God. So it's more than just active participation of the people. It is where they experience God in their lives. Why don't we move to talking about sacramentality? Because you have the whole chapter in your book on that. And I'm wondering if you would talk about what you mean by sacramental, since people mean a lot of things by that, and how music or specifically congregational singing can be considered sacramental. 
Partly, we labeled the whole concept sacramental or sacramentality in order to coincide with that chapter in the Introduction to Christian Worship by James White. But we also think the terminology is appropriate if carried out in a very basic sense. By sacrament, we would mean uh, a standard means by which God's presence is manifested and experienced in Christian community. And that's almost a more primitive sort of definition for sacrament. It's easy for us when we think sacrament to think of specific sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, or if you're Roman Catholic, you know, a tradition of seven sacraments. But actually defining some things as sacraments and other things not sacraments is a fairly late medieval theological development. So in the first thousand years of the church, it's a more open-ended sort of concept and generally applied to the, you know, the normal channel or means by which people experience God's presence. And that's the basic definition that we mean when we, we talk about the sacramentality of worship music or more specifically, this the sacramentality of praise. Right, because I think one of the very familiar saying within the early church fathers was lex orandi, lex credenti, right? The, the law of prayer is a law of belief. In later years, I think we are also using the word the law of prayer is a law of belief, is a law of singing. So that even through the act of singing, you will actually experience, strengthen and form your belief, which will also at the same time affect the way you pray. So they're all interconnected. So... In this way, you're seeing congregational singing as an outworking of praise then. And because it's an outworking of praise, because it is praise, it's a, it's yes, a way of being it, in the, the presence The praise of God. is the key thing. What we found by interviewing people and by reading early literature in this phenomenon, it was any praise, either individual or corporate, would enhance or bring about the sense of God's presence. And it was over time, especially in the 1970s into the 1980s, that the broad concept kind of got more narrow to music mm -hmm. and particularly extended times of congregational singing. And we see that in certain strands. If they use the term praise and worship as a technical term, that sequencing is actually very important because God's people praise. And when there's praise, then there's God's presence. And then once you're in God's presence, then the song should move to worship, which deal more with notions of adoration, glorification, appreciation, and kind of direct relationship. Think of the sequence from... I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. That's a praise song to um, uh, Laurie Klein's I Love You, Lord. So you would not normally flip the order of those. You would want those in that particular order. More obvious praise at the beginning and then more obvious adoration afterwards. What we need to look at is the fact that the contemporary worship has a different sense of order. It is very much experientially driven and particularly through music making. talking about this idea that there's a specific order that things happen in and this relates to the idea of flow that you talk about which is that songs should flow into one another seamlessly with no dead space and from a musical perspective that's coming from things like related keys and a uniform tactus but what you're talking about is that this is a specific thing that I think as you put it it's designed to help worshipers journey into the presence of God so it's, it's a thematic structure Yes. In most of the explanations, it's closely related to spatial or architectural concepts. 
especially, or the clearest sort of teaching on it is often tied to concepts of the temple or the tabernacle, where, you know, the most vivid sense of God's presence is going to be in the Holy of Holies. And so the the worship leader ushers us into the presence of God. We see a lot of ushering language. The worship leader uses the music set, the extended time of congregational singing, to move us through the different areas, gates, or entrances until the congregation is in the Holy of Holies. And you don't want to take side routes. You don't want to be sidetracked. That's what the lack of seamlessness, bad flow, dead time... Mm -hmm. is likely to create. Because in music making, I'm sure as you're aware, when we do classical music, there's always a sense of energy in the music making process. And that's why when you're working with conductor or you're working with musicians, we are always talking about lines. And when we talk about lines, it's basically flow. And we talk about putting yourselves into the music making or internalizing your music making or actualizing your music making. That's basically personifying the music in yourself. So when you talk about flow, this is something that we are also talking about in worship. So that the engagement of the worship experience is from the beginning where we have that objective uh, lift towards God in terms of praise. But as you get deeper into the journey, there is a sense of self-abandonment of being immersed and totally submitted into the presence of God. If we were to do a kind of a one song and we stop, we do an introduction and do a next song, that's the end of the flow because there are just too much breaks in between each song. So the, the goal of the contemporary worship in the sense of the objective is to actually encounter God. And how do you go about to help the people encounter God? And that's why flow features prominently in our book. And it has a thematic direction to it. So it's not just that it's a seamless flow of sound, but that you're moving, as you said, from praise to worship, or there were a couple other models of how the theme moves. And what really interested me about that is so often in more, I guess you would say, blended worship, there's this idea of the song set, and it's seamless, and you segue between songs, but at least in my experience, it doesn't have that same thematic structure. It misses the theological basis to the flow. Yeah, that's what we often see is in mainline contemporary services or in services that attempt to be blended, which oftentimes is about blending song repertoires and perhaps instrumentality and even, you know, a little bit less formality and a little bit less ceremony. You do lose this sense of the congregational singing, that extended period being an end in itself. We did an interesting interview not too long ago and found out that Jack Hayford's church, Church on the Way out in Van Nuys, California, I think it is, uh, Hayford's well known for being the composer for the song Majesty. Typically in evangelical services, you would give the altar call at the end of the sermon. They would give the altar call at the end of the congregational singing. Because if you had been, if the congregation had been praising God and then had moved into worshiping God, God was there and active, and that was the time to give the altar call. So they would give the altar call, pray for people, and then preach the sermon after that. The fact that that whole congregational singing piece, which would later later go by the name Set, has its own integrity, is self-contained. I think is really exemplified by doing an altar call at the end. Yeah, and I think if you are working with people who are from the liturgical side of the Christendom, who have a particular order like the fourfold pattern that we talked about in ancient uh, church history, I think having the proper understanding of what is the role and function of music 
and then having that match into the fourfold pattern, I think that will then still have the sense of set, but not have and not hinder the flow that is there. So you can actually construct a set out of, of let's say, uh, when you have a time of gathering. So your entire gathering set could be all your praise song. And then by the time you move to the segment on response, that could actually be all your worship songs. Yeah. So you could actually have medleys of praise and medleys of worship. So it's having to be able to think theologically and liturgically when you're designing the use of sets in the order. But don't you think, Sui Hong, part of it is to do it in a way so that you're not allowing the energy to right. dissipate. Right, right. That's right. And, yeah. and oftentimes that occurs when you have just one or two microphones right. and so much time is spent walking back and forth to those microphones right. to get so, anything done. So the, the deathly thing that uh, traditional services need to overcome is what we call transition. Our transition in the traditional services needs to be much stronger and much more effective. I was wondering about that because you mentioned that worship leaders, so who are primarily musicians in a way, they often are praying. And you mentioned that it's because of that transition time and you don't want to wait for the pastor to come up or for another like non-musician to come up and lead prayer. And I, I was very curious about that because to me, it seems like if you're planning a song set, it's planned out ahead of time. So couldn't someone come up at the very end during the song or add a little coda to the piece for like a transition of music to the prayer? It's It seemed like seemed like you could facilitate the pastor or another person coming up if you wanted to. And you could, and we do see that in some instances, but it's more common to let the spoken prayer flow immediately and naturally out of whatever the main vocalist yeah. is doing. And I think this is a, something that uh, Lester and I have been talking about, is the whole idea of whether contemporary worship is an interface or an operating system. I think the difference between an uh, interface where it is just a kind of a patchwork that needs to be worked into the uh, juxtaposed against an auto or an operating system which actually runs the entire system of the worship practice. I think being able to differentiate the differences between an interface and an operating system will actually help you understand how to achieve flow. Or, or to put it more simply, if you want to adopt the classic operating system of contemporary worship, it means your musicians, especially your chief vocalist, is going to have a different liturgical role. Right. They become pastoral musicians. That's yes. right. Yes. In so many traditional churches, your leading musicians are, are not even necessarily Christians, which, you know, works for their role in, in those services. But in, in contemporary worship, you basically have to be a practicing Christian. And it seems... It's, it seems to me like it's coming down to a certain kind of authenticity. Like you can't lead contemporary worship unless you have not just in the space of the service that ability to lead as a professing Christian, but also your whole life so that you're known in your in your church community as a Christian. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. and much of the early literature and even later literature is really about the deep formation of the musicians and, as Christians. And before anybody says that this, this is a 20th century idea, I think that's not correct. The idea actually comes from the Jewish practice of having a cantor. So if you go to a Jewish synagogue, you find that the cantor actually functions like a worship leader, but it's also a singer, also somebody who offers prayer. So the rabbi and the cantor is actually a tech team that actually works in ordering the particular Jewish worship system. The key Bible character who would be lifted up as the ideal type for a musician would be David. And so the essential qualification there is that a church musician has to be someone who is after God's own heart. Mm -hmm. 
And so, by definition, non-Christians wouldn't qualify for that. You mentioned the phrase, I think it was Davidic worship. Yeah, and, and that's part of that whole emphasis on David. It's a certain strand of teaching that sees the development of contemporary worship as the restoration of the tabernacle of David, which has appealed to certain early teachers because it's non-bloody sacrifices that are being offered. And so it seems a type easier for Christians to appropriate because we don't actually have to worry about the sacrifice of animals. We just have to worry about the sacrifice of praise, uh, Hebrews 13, 15, if I'm remembering their proof text. Would you talk about the sacrifice of praise? Yeah, and again, this is coming from a particular strand. We think a particularly important strand in the origins that ultimately derives back from a revival in Canada, Saskatchewan, in the late 1940s of all times and places. But it's essentially, it's a counter to earlier Pentecostal theology, which says we won't do anything until we're led. And so this emphasis on the sacrifice of praise is, no, no matter what, you have a positive command to praise. So even if everything is going well, you're going to praise God. Even if everything's going bad and it seems like it's a great sacrifice to praise, you're still going to praise God also because God will always honor that praise and will come and inhabit or be enthroned upon the praises. It's the appropriateness of praise beyond individual leading or volition. And there's actually a parallel to that sensibility in classic liturgy. Take a look at any of the classic Eucharistic prayers. Mm. There's the prayer, you know, after we go through the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts, we yeah. lift them up, give thanks, Lord our God. It is right to give God our thanks and praise. Indeed, it is a right, good, just, and meet thing to always and everywhere praise and thank you, O God. So even the Eucharistic prayer just says, regardless of the circumstances of life, it's appropriate to praise. And if you want to look into the Bible, then the book of Acts, where the story of Paul and Silas are in prison. And uh, in, the, in the middle of the prison, I mean, that's a very bad spot. They still praise and God manifested his presence in their midst. This is a very important teaching for that latter range strand that we think originates much of this in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. You talk about prayer quite a bit in your book. And one thing that you mentioned several times is that contemporary worship doesn't usually include intercessory prayer or confession. When you were just talking about praise, it struck me as, oh, well, maybe if the emphasis is on praising God always, then you're praising God even in the midst of suffering, in the midst of doubt. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about what seems to me kind of like a big omission there. Yes, there is an omission, and I think it's probably got several sources to it. One is that much of the early history are coming from liturgical traditions that don't follow a set order or haven't had a set written down order. And so it's easy for things to slip out, particularly if other things that seem very important are slipping in. So it would be easy to lose a, any sort of corporate confession of sin. Mm -hmm. It has been easy to lose communal intercession for the world. Oftentimes the services will do petitions for the people in there, and there can be really dynamic or dramatic times of what they would call prayer ministry within the service. That seems specific to the local congregation, like petitions for people who are there or their yes. networks. Yes, right? and part of that's tied to the Pentecostal piety and many of these early strands. 
in which, you know, if God is present, then God is very active and is active dealing with the individuals who were there. So when they go into prayer, the, almost the natural inclination is to pray for those who are in immediate need in the services. Mm-hmm. And this is oftentimes tied to Pentecostal emphases on healing and on miracles of healing, even you know notions of conversion, individual conversion, even activity against demonic activity, prayer activity against demonic activity, if we wanted to you know, stay within that realm of Pentecostal spirituality. But Sarah, to go back to your original question, I think if you see in our book us pointing out how little intercession and confession and even lament there are in these services, we're reflecting our own training in contemporary liturgy. I mean, not in traditional liturgy, mm-hmm. in classic historic liturgy, and how those are such a standard part of classic liturgies. And so it's a not so subtle critique that we're bringing, perhaps, or uh, critique's too strong a word because we don't attack them on it. Um, observation. Observation, just to try to name it. It seems like you're, you're naming it to ask, is this intentional? Like, have y'all noticed that you don't yes, that's do right. this? And oftentimes, it's only when you name it that they go, oh, yes, that's right. And then it's easy to make a scriptural case for confession and lament and for intercession. If you look at Hillsong, Australia, there was a comment from an Anglican priest in the neighborhood of Hillsong in the neighborhood in Sydney um, who wrote a letter or email to the music person in Hillsong and says, why is there no Hillsong for the Lord's Prayer? Well, the Hillsong people took up the challenge and within a couple of months, they had a Hillsong Lord's Prayer. So there's a kind of a engagement and interaction that actually goes back and forth between congregations. Yeah, anybody who would read our book would realize we're both very sympathetic to this entire phenomenon without... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, without <laughs> being able to point out, you know, these these are where the historical hiccups and anomalies are, too. Yeah, it's an incredibly sympathetic book to read, and I, I, I loved reading it from that perspective because so much... From my background as a traditional slash classical musician, so much about contemporary worship is very, very critical, and the criticisms are usually very superficial. That leads to to a question that I have about a big criticism of contemporary worship music is that it's theologically lightweight. But throughout your book, you're pointing out that many or most contemporary worship songs are rooted in scripture to the point that many are simply direct quotes or paraphrases of scripture. So I'm wondering, like, do you think that kind of criticism is just ignorant? But at the same time, you seem to talk about it as if it's something novel. But of course, you know, we've been singing the Psalms for millennia and scripture pervades uh, traditional hymnody. Until recently, I do think within the entire phenomenon, there's been a preferences for song forms that are more efficient, I might say, or more concise. So there's a limitation of words. If you just take a look at a single song, then even a single song can appear to be very shallow and not not actually saying very much. The depth of the theology, I think, is found when you look at the body of songs as a whole, along with the amount of teaching on worship that is commonly taught and accepted, particularly a lot of biblical reflection on worship and what it means to be a worshiper. But having said this in terms of economic or concise song forms, I often like to point out that if you take the Sanctus, for instance, from the Eucharistic prayer, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. There's not a lot of theological substance to that. And it is almost as much stream of consciousness as many of the current praise choruses are. So if you're going to complain about a recently written chorus, why not complain about that anciently written chorus that we just have in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer? It's just a mishmash of about three to four Bible verses <laughs> that in their original context don't have anything to do with each other. But what gives substance to that is its context. And so I think that's what we would suggest too. If you're going to start complaining about any individual contemporary songs, take a look at the whole context. Mm -hmm. And as the movement is maturing, there's actually been a slow but sure shift in the songwriting to deeper theological reflection, more sustained engagement between songwriters and theologians. And even the song forms are now getting longer and less efficient. And even the return of some hymnic forms, which can carry more words. Right. So if you talk about the theological issue, for musicians, I would encourage them to read Michael Horn's book, Gather Into One, because in chapter 10, he talked about two different types of musical oh, forms. Yeah. The cyclical nature, uh, which includes short choruses, tese kind of music, or refrains that we sing in, in hymns, as well as a linear kind of music, which would be more used for teaching, more for didactic approach, more for creedal statement. So the music itself has two deep, or the songs have two different kinds of function. So when we do the kind of comparison, we are basically comparing apple with lemons. That's not a fair comparison. If you bring the wrong expectations, then you'll get frustrated and you'll, mi you'll miss the point. Um, and the analogy that I use is of my own nature as a native English speaker. And whenever I've tried to learn a different language, it's important for me to hit the stop button on my assumptions about English grammar and English vocabulary, and thinking, making the false presumption that that's the way all languages must operate. Because when you're in contemporary worship, you're actually dealing with a different grammar system, or I think Sui Hong mentioned operating system. Um, and so if you bring the wrong expectations, you will miss the point of it and how it operates, how to engage in it fully, what to expect of it, what it expects of you as a worshiper. Oftentimes when I hear people complain about it being shallow or um, uh, not, not seeing any merit at all, it, it just almost strikes me like they're speakers of English and they're trying to learn French and they're frustrated because French doesn't operate the way English does. Does that make no, sense? It does. It does. And it makes me wonder about the whole project of more liturgical traditions that I'm thinking of, say, Episcopalians or Lutherans or Catholics, where you have a very structured uh, liturgy that you're, that you're working with. And oftentimes a parish council or, or some group wants to bring contemporary worship in, or more specifically contemporary music in not understanding that it's a whole package of contemporary worship. And they think, oh, well, you know, if we get this contemporary style, we'll keep the young people, right? Yes. But it seems like that's kind of missing the boat because the music is just part of a much, much larger framework. That's right. It would be saying, like, I'm going to learn French here, and all that means is I'm going to learn French words for things without actually being able to construct 
then it's, which is uh, which is what uh, happens where it's like you end up pulling a worship song and treating it as a hymn this is our opening song this is our whatever and it, it takes it out of that context and maybe that's why people say oh that's really superficial because it was never meant for that particular context and i'm, no, not, I'm not saying you can't or yeah. shouldn't it just it doesn't always work yes it doesn't work because it wasn't intended to work that way mm-hmm. And that's why, for me, if we want to transplant, okay, the word that I would use is transplanting contemporary worship songs into a liturgical, although way of of worship, then I think there is a need for deep scholarship. There's a need for careful study of the liturgy, of the rituals that are involved, and of the background of the song, and more importantly, the performance practice of the song as well. So there needs to be a tent and a careful study. The key thing that I always uh, rave against is where we think that by changing the style of music, we will save the church. That will not happen. No. You know, 20 years ago, a mainline congregation might be able just to add, you know, new instruments and a new song, and it was novel enough that it might attract some people, but... You don't have a hard time finding a contemporary service nowadays for the most part. And so I don't think simply changing your instruments and changing your song repertoire is necessarily going to attract attract people, even young people. Right. And, And so what we learn in our research of this phenomenon is the whole idea of authenticity. I think having that sense of integrity in the worship makes the worship vibrant, makes the worship meaningful. doesn't matter whether it is contemporary or liturgical. It has to be done with integrity. Yeah, one of the biggest divides that we see within the whole phenomenon is basic motivation Mm -hmm. for doing contemporary worship. And at the risk of oversimplification, there are those who see this way of worship as a gift from God. God has given us this way of worship. Um, It coincides with what we see in Scripture. And in fact, God has moved in new and marvelous ways to actually inspire it. Those don't tend to be mainline folks. The more mainline thinking is what we call gap thinking. And it presumes that people and culture are at one place, but the church's worship is at a different place. And therefore, somehow we have to find some way to bridge the gap between the two. And that's what we often see. Well, we need to change the music out to bridge that gap and be able to attract these young people who don't find church interesting anymore. But that actually is much less appealing to me than the first model, which actually says it's necessary to worship this way in order to fully utilize the gifts that God has given us. The other way just tends to see worship as a functional tool. And the end, that doesn't honor God. Mm-hmm. If we've grown more sympathetic in writing the book, I, me personally, I've grown more sympathetic to this the, the authenticity within the Pentecostal mm-hmm. approach to it, that this mm-hmm. is a gift from God. Even if I might question some of the particulars of the way they articulate that, at least I appreciate that their motivation for doing it is to try to fulfill God's will, mm-hmm. not overcome some cultural gap. Mm-hmm. But the key is to know how to shift your expectations when you're crossing over into a different liturgical tradition. Oh, yes. Like, I, here I am now working in this Catholic church, and the very first mass that I played for and sang for, I didn't leave enough silence. I didn't need enough, you know, so-called dead time. And the priest afterwards was like, no, 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 you have to you have to wait until I stand up. No, you need to wait until the readers sit down. You need that silence. And that was a, is an, a really important value for them. Yes. But it certainly doesn't flow in the same kind of way. It's just different. It's just different, and it has its own authenticity right. within that way of worship. 
Yeah, or as you said, integrity. It's it, it has integrity. Right, because the liturgical services that we are talking about actually has a particular kind of rhythm, a kind of a rhythmic cycle, a kind of taktus that is there. And their taktus is actually based on silence, not on sound, which is very different from the contemporary worship taktus. So I think once we understand the taktus as a musician, we can better serve the congregation once we understand the DNA of their worship service. That was Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth discussing their new book, Lovin' on Jesus, A Concise History of Worship Music. You can read more about them and their book on this episode's show notes, musicinthechurch.com slash blog slash episode three. Let us know what you think. Email us at musicinthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282.